Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch brought to you today by Gabby. We have a good martini today. Good, bad, and crazy for conservatives. Hope your week's off to a good start. And Jim, it's off to a good start in January yet again for Tom Brady. Uh, long your nemesis as a quarterback for the Patriots. Now he's in the other conference, the NFC, quarterback of the Buccaneers. And all he did uh, this January is win three straight road games to get to another Super Bowl, which he'll play on his home field yesterday, beating the Packers at Lambeau. Uh, do you have any words of consolation and advice for fans of the NFC teams now? Well, one, now you know how the rest of us felt uh, here in the AFC. But the other thing I'm going to observe, you know, Greg, funny thing, you, you moves to the other conference and puts on a different team uniform. And I don't know about you. I don't mind the guy so much anymore. It's kind of likable. This kid's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> also, let's recalibrate our assessment of Bill Belichick now and forever. Clearly, Belichick was uh, luckier to have Brady than Brady was to have Belichick. So uh, as long as this, you know, as long as this depresses Patriots fans and it makes them wistful, it makes them realize that with Brady at the uh, helm, uh, that they could have competed again for a Super Bowl. I mean, let's remember Tampa Bay was just seven and nine last year. Yes, they added some other talent and all that. But uh, no, really, this, this kind of says that the Patriots dynasty was a Tom Brady dynasty. And that makes me feel pretty good today, Greg. I don't know about you. Well, I'm, I'm sure after hearing that, Bill Belichick is saying that's uh, bulletin board material and moving on to the preseason. Uh, I will say this, though. Somehow, some way in the regular season, the Bears beat the Buccaneers. So if Tampa wins, Jim, this is like when, when the Rams and the, and the Browns were still going in the playoffs, uh, that if one of them were to happen to win the Super Bowl, that you could claim you were better than the Super Bowl champ. The Bears actually still can claim that if the, if the Buccaneers can beat the Chiefs. But that's a big if because the Chiefs look pretty good, too. I was going to say, that's, that's your consolation prize. And I've, <laughs> I've, I've invoked that quite a few times because for a really long stretch, I want to say to like the early Brady years, no team that had ever lost to the Jets had gone on to win the Super Bowl. So I enjoyed being the kiss of death that if we beat you, there's no way you can have a good successful season. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so that's where we are. All right. Well, let's get on to our good martini. And Jim, we'll see if this actually happens, but it looks like there's uh, members of Congress in both parties who are concerned about the price tag on Joe Biden's first round of COVID relief. Uh, And these are names you're probably going to hear a lot in the coming months and next couple of years because they're going to be the ones ultimately determining what passes and what doesn't on uh, issues that come up for a straight up or down vote. Susan Collins, Joe Manchin, Angus King. Washington Post has the story. Lawmakers from both parties lobbied White House officials Sunday for a more targeted relief bill as they questioned the need for some of the items included in President Biden's $1.9 trillion coronavirus plan. The discussion came on a private Zoom call between key centrist lawmakers of both parties and Biden administration officials led by National Economic Council Director Brian Deese. It's an early test for whether Biden's relief plan has a chance of getting the kind of support it would need to pass Congress with bipartisan backing. For example, lawmakers on the call raised questions including whether a new round of $1,400 checks included in the proposal could be more narrowly targeted to those who need them the most. Participants also asked administration officials to justify the need for hundreds of billions allocated for other purposes, including $130 billion for schools, given that Congress has already spent some $4 trillion on coronavirus relief efforts, including $900 billion approved 
in December. And so Susan Collins says lots of unanswered questions. There's still $1.8 trillion we've already approved that hasn't been spent yet. Angus King says we have to realize everything we spent uh, on the previous bills and what we're going to spend here will end up being paid for and borrowed from our grandchildren. So, Jim, uh, I don't know what more targeted means exactly. We went through what uh, Biden was proposing here last week, and there seems like a lot of things that aren't necessary and are very tangentially related. So uh, ultimately, the votes will happen. But it's good to see people at least trying to make this smaller. I doubt they'll actually be able to make it as small as we would like it, but uh, it's moving maybe in the right direction here. Yeah. I mean, the first thing that jumped out at me when I saw this story this morning, Greg, is how often do you see the words bipartisan group of senators and less spending in the same (laughs) sense? Usually more spending is the answer to bring parties together. Every, you know, uh, Republicans talk a good game about trying to reduce spending, but then, you know, are perfectly fine with defense spending and various other expenditures. Um, so usually the way you paper over the differences, you throw money to my priorities, I throw money to your priorities, and we're all happy, except for the people who have to pay the debt, you know, in a generation. The other thing which is, I think, significant about this is that this group that was on this call includes 16 senators, eight each from the Democratic and Republican caucuses. That's not nothing. Um, I know there's some talk Democrats want to try to push this through through reconciliation. They would only need 50 votes if they did that. But if you've got eight Democrats who are, you know, publicly clearing their throats and expressing some concern about this, they could torpedo it. Doesn't mean I think they definitely are going to, but it's a large enough group that you can't just, you know, hand wave it away as uh, hand wringing from one or two uh, particular senators. Uh, also note that the leaders of the quote unquote problem solvers caucus in the house were also on the call. So you might run into trouble in the house, which also has you know, a democratic majority, but a fairly narrow one. I think it's a large enough group that they're going to have to be listened to and they're going to have to be placated. Now, maybe they get placated by one or two symbolic gestures, or maybe they manage to shave off some of this stuff. But it is nice to see this. Um, And it is, you know, we'll see how far it goes. But the the sheer numbers of it and the fact that this is occurring. Oh, by the way, keep in mind that the Senate is going to be holding an impeachment trial. So they're not going to have an endless amount of time to spend, you know, hashing all this stuff out. I think the odds are now pretty likely that the Biden administration is going to feel pressure to make at least some move to indicate that they're listening to this group of lawmakers. Jim, I'm just amazed by the fact that there were 16 senators, and you mentioned bipartisan, but then 28 House members, that's 44 on a Zoom call, plus a handful from the White House. You're looking at at least 50 people probably on a Zoom call. You and I have been on plenty of Zoom calls in the past nine months, uh, including one with each other uh, every single day. And, uh, you know, I I know we're all used to this now, but can you imagine how many people are just like, hey, you're on mute. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, uh, This would would be a pretty complicated effort. So the fact that they're actually making some progress... uh, through this is kind of impressive. Yeah, Greg, my favorite comparison of the last few months is saying that large group Zoom calls are now kind of like the modern day equivalent of seances. <laughs> Ryan, are you with us? Can you hear us? Show us a sign. <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of the, that's kind of reality now, Jim. But uh, there are some things you can really do that are productive with your time online when you're not trying to figure out who needs to be unmuted. Uh, and hopefully Jeffrey Tubin's not on your call at all. Uh, but look for Gabby Insurance. That's the way to make sure that you're saving as much money as possible on your car and homeowner's insurance. Because we're all looking for ways to spend money. And as we just talked about, uh, some families need even more targeted relief. How would you like to keep an extra $961 a year in your pocket on average? That's how much Gabby customers save per year on car and homeowner's insurance. And that's why when you're shopping for insurance, you really want to use Gabby. 
And this is the time of year when most folks go shopping for insurance. And Gabby takes the pain out of shopping for insurance by giving you a comparison of your current coverage with 40 of the top insurance providers. We're talking about companies like Progressive and Nationwide and Travelers. You just link your current insurance account and in just minutes, you'll be able to see quotes for the exact same coverage that you currently have. Now, like Greg mentioned earlier, Gabby's customers save $961 per year on average. I bet that'd be nice to have in your pocket every year. And if they can't find you savings, they'll let you know so that you can relax knowing that you have the best rate that is out there. And they will never sell your information, so you'll never have to deal with annoying spam or robocalls. You're probably overpaying on car and homeowner's insurance. That's just a fact. And it's so simple to check out. You can do it in just a couple of minutes. You go to Gabby. There's about 10 different prompts. It's all information you already know. At the end, you link to your current insurance policy and you find out how much you can possibly save. And if you don't end up saving that much, although you probably will, you'll have the peace of mind, like Jim said, of knowing that you're getting pretty much the best deal you can get. So see how much Gabby can save you. Totally free to check. No obligation. Gabby.com slash martini. That's G-A-B-I dot com slash martini. Gabby.com slash martini. All right, Jim, let's move on to our second martini now, our bad martini. And that's the news that Ohio Republican Senator Rob Portman is not running for re-election in 2022. Uh, Portman spent six terms in the House, 12 years. Then he left to become George W. Bush's trade representative. And then in the big Tea Party wave of 2010, uh, he won a Senate seat in Ohio, uh, replacing the retiring George Voinovich. Uh, Never seriously challenged. Uh, He has won races by 18 points and then 21 points. Uh, And Ohio, obviously, especially if you look at the last presidential election and even the one before that, uh, trending red. But Republicans are going to be playing a lot of defense. So in addition to Rob Portman, who's kind of a guy who gets stuff done in the Senate, uh, you're looking at uh, perhaps even a tough race in Ohio, depending on who runs. And you also have a lot of defense in other competitive states that almost seem to be all held by Republicans, states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, uh, Iowa, and so on, uh, North Carolina. So uh, the last thing Republicans needed was another big fight on their hands where they have to uh, fight to hold on to a seat. But uh, that's where we are, as Rob Portman is not looking for a third term. Yeah, Rob Portman ranks among my my favorite Republican senators in you know, just your classic definition of a guy who is a workhorse, not a show horse. Uh, you don't see him pounding the podium or getting into Twitter fights with celebrities or anything like that. Almost everything he does, he, you know, every argument he makes in the context of this is what's best for my state and this is what's best for uh, the the people of of Ohio. So, you know, I'm going to miss the guy. Um, Just seriousness, intellect. This is a guy who came to change policy in the right direction. This isn't a stepping stone to, you know, a, a Fox News gig or anything like that. He takes his job very seriously and, uh, that is a trait that I think we need more of in Washington. I think you're right. Like, you know, could Republicans keep the Senate seat in an open seat uh, race in Ohio? Sure. Are they certain to? No. And the map is getting a little tougher. This is a little bit of a surprise. It's not terribly old. You know, and, and the worth noting is like the, the high watermark for Republicans in that upper Midwest Rust Belt region probably was 2016. Bush, I mean, uh, Trump sweeping states that Bush had managed to, uh, you know, he won Ohio. He was, was never able to win Pennsylvania, never able to win uh, Wisconsin, although he came very close one year. Um, you know, this is just, t- t- you know, pretty darn purple territory. Well, now we got Pat Toomey retiring in Pennsylvania. That one's going to be a dog fight. Uh, I don't think you put Republican chances that much better than 50-50. 
Uh, Wisconsin, we don't know what Ron Johnson's going to do. Democrats are already lining up. And, you know, both times he ran, he was considered a big underdog. He managed to win both times. But I think uh, Johnson's not a certainty. And now you put in Ohio. Is it a Republican-leaning state? Yes. All other things being equal, you'd expect uh, a Republican to win. And if in 2022, the, the autumn of that year, we're already in this backlash mentality against actions of the Biden administration, Republicans should be fine. But now you're going to have an open seat. You're probably going to have a primary fight. We're going to see how this goes. I don't know if um, uh, Florida, Marco Rubio, is an absolute lock for that. Uh, he managed to do a really you know, solid job back in 2016. Uh, running for re-election after he had said he was not going to run for re-election. It was presidency or bust. But, you know, now that one's not certain. And there's apparently rumors that they want Ivanka Trump to primary him or something like that. You know, a good question is going to be how much energy and money and resources get spent in these primary fights. And then how much is left over uh, and how quickly can the party unite after those primaries to head into the, the Senate? You know, by itself, this doesn't doom the chances of Republicans winning the Senate. It's still 50-50. You know, one of the lessons I, I you look back to the 2009 2010 cycle. Uh, somebody had made a comment the other day about you know Obama having 60 seats. No, he didn't. He came close to 60 seats. He had about two months where he had a, a stretch, one month here and one month there where he had 60 seats. But between people resigning, people Ted Kennedy dying, Arlen Specter changing parties, the number of Democrats in the chamber kept changing. Right, so it's not a guarantee that it'll still be 50 50 once we get to November 2022. But that having been said. You know, you want as simple a path ahead to get to a Republican majority again as possible. And uh, Rob Portman retiring does not make it any easier. No, it doesn't. And we'll see if Chuck Grassley runs again in Iowa. If he doesn't, I think that's going to be a big fight. Uh, Richard Burr is retiring in North Carolina. And even if he wasn't, <laughs> that would be a very difficult race. Uh, who knows what's going to happen with Lisa Murkowski, particularly on the primary side up in Alaska. A lot of questions in Senate races that, uh, that Republicans uh, hold at the moment. So... Uh, I really hope we can win the House in 2022, because if the Democrats get a couple more seats, that filibuster could be in a lot of danger. So we will see. We will see. Hey, guys, it's Mock and Daisy from Chicks on the Right. We're excited to tell you about our podcast, the Mock and Daisy Common Sense Cast. From discussing topics like cancel culture, what's happening to our new generations, crises in our nation, and even some high-profile interviews, each week we touch on subjects that matter to us and matter to you. And we're not afraid to tell you how it is. So tune in every week to hear us talk about the things or even just get a good laugh. To find out more, go to our website, chicksontheright.com, or start listening on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to leave Leave a comment, a review, and subscribe. On to our crazy martini now, Jim. And this is your lead in the morning jolt today. Uh, the new head of the CDC not distinguishing herself right now. You say we live in a world where the head of the CDC claims the federal government does not know how many doses of coronavirus vaccine they have at any given moment. Dr. Rochelle Walensky was on Fox News Sunday and says, quote, I can't tell you how much vaccine we have. And if I can't tell it to you, then I can't tell it to the governors and I can't tell it to the state health officials. If they don't know how much vaccine they're getting, not just this week, but next week and the week after that, they can't plan. They can't figure out how many sites to roll out. They can't figure out how many vaccinators they need. And they can't figure out how many appointments to make for the public. Uh, she said that uh, the lack of knowledge of vaccine supply is indicative of the challenges we've been left with. And Jim, you say given the ability to track data and uh, figure out data nowadays, that does not hold water. Explain why she's all wet. Yeah, well, for starters, I don't quite want to scream at the U.S. Centers for 
disease control and prevention, you know, you had one job, they have multiple jobs, but keeping track of how many vaccines are being produced, how many are staying here in the United States and how many are being shipped overseas. And, you know, those companies have made agreements with foreign governments as well. And how many have been used and how many are still in stock. This is the sort of thing you'd think would be under the CDC's bailiwick, under their, uh, their duties. And the thing is that if you go to the CDC website, they have the COVID data tracker, which keeps track of how many you know, doses have been distributed, how many doses have been administrated, how many people have received one or more doses and how many people have received two doses. It's all broken down by state. It's all updated once a day. Is, is all this data on here you know, bogus? Is this, I, you know, I don't, if nothing else, they should know what the numbers are now. And the second thing, if you're trying to figure out, well, we don't know how many is going to be available a week from now, two weeks from now, three weeks from now. You know, I, I'm pretty sure Moderna and Pfizer have phones, right? Like you know, Pfizer's got to know how many they've manufactured and how many they've shipped out the door. Moderna's got to know this stuff. And we're going to know about Johnson & Johnson probably in a couple of weeks. So it doesn't really make sense that they would, um, uh, that she wouldn't have this. And then the other thing I noticed, in, and I, you know, this was in a separate New York uh, Times article, is a reference to the fact that, you know, the administration says that they've... Uh, believe about 18, between the two companies, about 18 million doses are coming out every week. Well, this was attributed to a senior Biden administration official. They didn't say which one. I hope the senior Biden administration official can call up the head of the CDC and say, hey, here's what we know, because I just don't understand what my sneaking suspicion, Greg. Look, people listen to this podcast know I have all kinds of gripes with Trump administration. I don't think Trump did a particularly good job uh, I think Operation Warp Speed was an enormous success, and I, you know, but there's there's plenty of gripes with it. I think Trump has now turned into the universal scapegoat for any problem that anybody's having. Early in the week, on Friday, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said, "We're running out of it. We're going to run out of it by the end of the day." Um, now, according to the Bloomberg data tracker, they'd only used 61% of their vaccine so far. I have a corner post that just went up a few minutes ago pointing out the number that the C- the numbers of doses that have been distributed on the CDC website. Um, which, which is updated every day, once a day around 10 or 11 a.m. And the amount that is on the state websites, there's a pretty glaring disparency. Now they're updated at different times. I expect there to be a little bit of discrepancy. I, I'm not, you know, and you're, one group's got, you're looking at two groups of data. They're going to be updated at different times. Okay, I don't need them to be exactly on the button. You look at um, New Jersey, they're off by, thir- there's a 30,000 dose difference. So that, that could be one day uh, of that sort of thing. I'm not that worried about it. Uh, but in New York, there's a half million dose discrepancy between what the CDC was shipped to the state and what the state says it received. Now, I don't think they got lost in transition. I don't think they're sitting by the side of the road somewhere, but someone, somebody somewhere is not measuring accurately how much this thing is. And oh, by the way, New York State says that its, it's update, website gets updated once a day. So there really shouldn't be a discrepancy on that scale. I don't know exactly what the reason, uh, what's going on here, but I do know that one, the claim that the CDC has no idea that like, that's your job, ma'am. I, I don't understand how the CDC could not know this. Two, the CDC has a full website informing the public of how many doses are going out the door. So I don't understand where, if, if she doesn't know this, like what's that data on that website? And then the third thing is, is why is it what's on the CDC website not match what the states are putting in their things? Very confusing, very frustrating, but you know, there's really no ex- good explanation for why the CDC director uh, is supposed to, he doesn't know how many doses they have. And they can't just say, oh, Trump screwed it all up. So I can't be expected to be on top of my job right now.
This is going to be just like Obama, right? Where we inherited a trillion dollar deficit and a ruined economy. I mean, that's it was it was bad, but I mean, he was still saying that well after he was reelected. I mean, there was no expiration date on uh, when he stopped blaming George W. Bush. So I think we're going to get a ton of that. Greg, it was the only Obama statement that didn't have an expiration date. <laughs> I knew you were going to go there. Oh, by the way, on the Ohio issue uh, with the open Senate seat, Jim, I don't know if you're like me, where as soon as there's a vacancy, uh, kind of the mainstream media pundits who are active on Twitter start throwing out the most well-tread names that you know have no interest in running and the voters probably have no interest in them running. How many John Boehner for Senate suggestions have you already seen this morning? A few. And at last I heard, he was really happy on his on his ride on lawnmower. He, he does not seem like a guy who's, who's itching to come back. Every interview, he looks like the most relaxed, happy man he's ever seen. You know, he's... he's uh, any more relaxed you think he's on Quaaludes. So, you know, this does not seem like a guy who's itching to jump back into uh, Capitol Hill and all the usual partisan fights and all that kind of stuff. Maybe have a bench in your party. I assume there is one. Republicans have done pretty well in Ohio. I'm sure if Boehner says no, there'll be talk of Kasich. People, broaden your vision a little bit. It's not always the same people that have been there forever. Anyway. So every time you have a Republican-leaning state and some nut job ends up getting the statewide nomination, I'm sitting there thinking like, you know, like in this case, it's Ohio. You, you should not be able to throw a rock into a tree without knocking out at least one Buckeye and one good, you know, solid Republican. This is, you know, this is not, you know, uh, uh, Hawaii. You're going to have a hard time finding good competitive Republicans, maybe. Yeah. yeah. So think you got some time. He gave you uh, his resignation as a resignation, his retirement announcement pretty early on here in uh, 2021. So uh, think about it. Figure out a good candidate and hopefully the seat can get held. Jim, uh, that's our The More You Know for today when it comes to Ohio Republicans. We'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, uh, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget about Gabby, uh, assuming you want to save some money on your insurance, that is. Uh, Gabby.com slash martini. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. Always very grateful, very grateful for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Also, get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch Podcast. Have a great Monday, and we'll see you tomorrow on the next Three Martini Lunch. Hi, it's Dana Lash, host of The Dana Show. Every day, I'm here to keep you up to speed on the most important stories and info that you need to know in your very busy life. And if you're always on the go and you want to stay connected, just download our daily podcast and take it with you. It's a great way to get up to speed on what you need to know and what legacy media may not be telling you. Visit DanaRadio.com and click on the podcast link or subscribe at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.